Welcome to New in Nashville. This is your host, Elam Freeman. I'm a commercial real estate broker and yoga instructor based in Nashville, Tennessee, and I am a Nashville native who has spent time living in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. I have also traveled to all 50 states and visited nearly every U.S. metropolitan city bigger than Nashville. I am crazy about Nashville's growth and want natives, newcomers, and tourists to have the knowledge they need to keep up with our city's pace. Today's guest is Stephen Glicken, founder and CEO of Nashville-based Project Admission. Prior to starting Project Admission, Stephen helped grow a company that was purchased by Songkick. Stephen has spent his career living and traveling across various continents. Now he is working on building an improved experience for the buying, selling, and distribution of digital tickets to increase data and revenue. By tracking a ticket's chain of ownership and expanding distribution, Project Admission opens up revenue, marketing, and data collection opportunities and creates an interest graph that goes beyond event attendees. In the episode, we discuss why Stephen chose Nashville for Project Admissions headquarters, how he stays on top of things amongst all the travel, and what his plans for the future are. If you are involved or are interested in the technology or entertainment space in Nashville, you will find this month's episode intriguing. Today, we are here with Stephen Glicken, who is the founder of Project Admission. Welcome, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited to learn more about your background and Project Admission and why Nashville for you. So to jump right in, where are you from originally and what part of Nashville do you live in now? So I'm originally from Miami, Florida, uh, but since then I've lived in Boulder, Colorado, Boston, Sevilla, Spain, Buenos Aires, Orlando, Puerto Rico, New York, and now I live in Hillsborough West End in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. The most original of them all. <laughs> um, and do you currently have residences anywhere else? Um, well, we do have 10 acres in Dixon, which is like 45 minutes away. A little, <laughs> nice. little creek and some land out there. Cool. Awesome. Um, but no, we, we, we are permanent in Nashville. But both my wife and I travel to New York and L.A. constantly. Right. Okay. And do you um, speak any other languages? Having I speak some Spanish, but yeah. I'm pretty rusty. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's been a little while. Yeah. But yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty well fluent in Spanish. Yeah. Cool. I would imagine so living in those various places. Yeah. Miami, Spain, kind of Puerto yeah, Rico. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and what informs your decision to pursue entrepreneurship. Sure. So uh, I started my career as an audio engineer and producer, worked in studios, did a lot of hip-hop stuff, um, worked with everybody from Puff Daddy to Nas to Ghostface Killer, um, ended up in Puerto Rico to go produce a couple records, ended up living there for a couple years, um, started a venue down there, built a couple recording studios, started a record label, um, uh, managed uh, with my partner down there, uh, a big reggaeton artist um, called Zion and Lennox for a while. Um, moved to New York, started the uh, uh, sustainably-minded record label with this guy Ben Bronfman out of Warner and ran that for about five years. And then from there, met this guy Matt Jones and came on as the first uh, employee in the U.S. for CrowdSurge. So there's about four of us total. It's like you know, a couple of people in London and me in New York. 
Um, and we uh, eventually built CrowdSurge to pretty significant size and uh, ended up merging with a company called Songkick. Um, and at CrowdSurge and Songkick, there's a couple things we did. One was kind of take an allocation of tickets from any venue where an artist was playing, and we worked with everyone from Adele to Paul McCartney to Metallica to Kenny Chesney. Um, and took some tickets and wrapped them in their voice and sold directly from their site to help them connect directly with their fans. And we did this in 70 different countries. Um, so we you know, built that from four of us to about 150 people and had five offices and uh, ran that uh, until basically the beginning of last year was kind of the final uh, time for me there. And uh, right from that basically started Project Admission. Awesome. Cool. So what excites you about the intersection of tech and music? Well, I think, I'm, I mean, I'm most excited about the intersection of tech and ticketing. Um, you know, there's the cats out of the bag with streaming. I think they need to figure out what's going on with uh, how to pay people properly. But um, for ticketing, it's basically this kind of beast of a logistics and operations uh, business that is evolving into tech and is there's tons of room for it to grow and it's, uh, a pretty hard leap for ticketing to kind of move from their uh, entrenched and kind of typical operations that exist right now into kind of a new way of moving tickets around, um, you know, mobile, things like that. So um, I'm very interested in kind of taking ticketing and taking it to the next uh, phase mm. and helping uh, bring tickets into, I guess, the 21st century, which there's still pretty antiquated in the way most tickets are kind of moved around. Yeah. What would you say is most antiquated and where I mean, the, do you see the most opportunity? So it's it's tricky with ticketing because they are logistics and operations companies that, you know, have to get a large number of people to buy something and then get a large number of people into a room. And it's pretty complex to get that done. Um, the The way that people get into a venue or get into an event is by scanning in in some fashion. And so the to do that, you need some sort of asset to signify the ticket. And so that's a barcode or a QR code or those things are a pretty old bit of technology. And by putting a barcode or a QR code out into the world, you've now kind of disconnected from the rights holder, the artist or the sports team. And now whoever has that barcode or the QR code can do whatever they want with it. Um, and so we're, we're working to kind of help advance that piece and make the the connection from the artist into the event, the life cycle of the ticket more more connected. Mm -hmm. Great. So I guess from a high level, what is kind of your elevator pitch for project admission? So we are working to make uh, the life of a ticket more connected. <laughs> um, we are uh, also working to kind of make the ticket more transferable. We basically turn the ticket into an airplane ticket, get rid of the barcode and the QR code, and make it easy to pass to your friend, sell it to your friend for face value, um, get rid of the tickets if you're not able to go to the show. But it kind of changes the paradigm of the existing way that people think about the secondary market and transfers and exchanges because we're basically reactionary against the fact that the secondary market has control over someone's asset and that is disconnected from the rights holder. So by connecting it to the rights holder and giving them the ability to set, let's say, business rules, so cap the resale value. So say you can sell my ticket, but only for face value. Giving that kind of control changes the uh, the way in which a ticket could move around. Um, right now, we fight against that, and we say no transfers, no exchanges. People kind of try to lock it down because we're fighting against this disconnected 
secondary market. But it shouldn't be two different things. It should just be the life of the ticket. And we're helping to kind of connect these two these two parts of the ecosystem. Gotcha. So which companies out there that are currently existing are you working with to connect that are already in the space? So are you working with Ticketmaster? Are you working with uh, Live Nation? Uh, you know, how does all of that kind of, how do you all work together? So we basically integrate into a ticketing company after you've purchased the ticket and then take over the management of the ticket. So for example, we just are finishing an integration with a company called ShowClicks, where if you bought a ticket, on the ShowClicks platform, when you get your email receipt, rather than getting the barcodes and the QR codes, you drop into our platform, and we then kind of give you what looks and feels like tickets, but it's really your identity associated with those tickets and all the information around it. And then in the product, we make it easy to kind of activate and, and put an identity to all the other tickets and move them around. And then when it comes to the access control or getting into the venue, we drop it back into the primary ticketing company, ShowClicks, in this example, to have them run the on-site piece. So we kind of take over the life of the ticket after you bought it and before you walk into the event and help kind of identify who's going to shows um, with the ultimate goal of understanding everybody who's bought, sold, transferred, and walked into an event. Got it. So the user is primarily interfacing with your app? So the way we built it is kind of, I, I always, it's like, as simple as possible. Um, there's no downloads. There's no hoops that anybody needs to jump through. There's there's always a there, – there, you find that a lot of the technology related to ticketing is creating more hurdles for the fans. And we're taking a very kind of artist, sports team, fan approach in how we built the platform. So it is – Dumb simple, I think is the best way to describe it. So, yeah, they drop into us and we effectively become the ticket, but we've built it where there's no hurdles or no barrier to entry for them to kind of move things around, make okay. it really, really simple. Got it. So they're not using an app? It's no just, app. It's yeah. an email? We can integrate or, into an app. Okay, or a or just on a web browser? Yeah. Yeah, okay. so it's, a, it. it's a web app. Okay, got But it. no, no, you know, yeah, uh, native. Password, yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense. Cool. Um and tell us a little bit more about the opportunity that you saw for project admission in the marketplace. And is this something you've seen for a long time? Um, where, How are you differentiating and are there other competitors in the space? Totally. So the, uh, the opportunity is around um, a couple of like big stats that exist out there. So one is we know about 15% on average, of who's going to events. So typically, if you were to buy three tickets, I know who you are. I don't know who your two friends are. You might sell those tickets on the secondary market, and then I don't even know if you're going to the event. Um, the secondary market is currently kind of globally sized at about $15 billion, and uh, it is typically not connected to the rights holders. So that $15 billion in revenue is kind of outside of the, the, uh, the rights holders. Um, and then on top of that, which is one that's kind of less discussed. I mean, it's discussed in the ticketing world, but um, the there forty percent of all tickets are left unsold. So everything we hear in the press is all about these sold out shows and people selling Bruce Springsteen tickets for you know five thousand um, dollars. But the reality of the vast majority of events is that they're not selling all their tickets, and that equates to if you size up like sports, music, and theater globally, that counts to like forty five billion dollars in unrealized revenue, which is a huge opportunity. Typically, that kind of lack of, uh, of, or not, the inability to sell those tickets is typically equated to discovery. You know, I, oh, I would have gone to the show had I known. And so that kind of folds back into that first stat of understanding who's going to events, the ability to kind of speak to 
the fans. It's basically like you start over every event. You know, you only know the small portion of who was at your show. And then next time you go to that market, you have to start over again because you don't know who was there before. Right. So you're a, almost like a data company, and then you'll collect that information. And do you have plans to sell that then? No, that's okay. for the rights holders. Okay, yeah. got it. That's for the artists, for the sports team, for the ticketing company that we partner with. Okay, cool. Yeah. And when building this company, did you go through a VC process? Are you in, are currently doing that? So we did a friends and family round, um, and we are doing another round right now. Um, we've raised a good chunk of money. Um, yeah, that's probably like the, the least fun part about running a business, uh, getting towards revenue is fundraising. Right. Everything else is super fun. Raising money <laughs> is the worst. Yeah. I guess it depends on your strengths. But yeah. And for us, yeah. it's like, it's not the, the, the fundraise is not the win. Right. You know, like that is, I, I say it's the worst because it's a distraction. Yeah. Right. Like we're, we're building a business that. Uh, has a ton of opportunity right now, and focus has to be split a bit to raise money right. and also grow the business. So it's kind of a, you know, you just want to get it done and move on to the to the fun part. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your strategy for staying organized as you have so much going on. You're, current, you're traveling all the time. Um, I know it can be a taxing experience, but it sounds like that's pretty much been a part of your entire career. So um, I'd love just any advice that you have to listeners who are traveling a lot for their job and how they stay on top of it all? Uh, surround yourself with good people. Uh, the reason we are able to plow ahead on the product, on kind of keeping the trains running on time is because I have good people around me and my co-founders are amazing. And I it affords me the opportunity to run around and build what we want to build and create the partnerships and create the connections and raise the money while things are still kind of plowing ahead. I'd say for myself, keeping organized, it's, you know, uh, I think it's, I, I always have a struggle of having too many meetings every day. Like it, it, like I typically will have, it's not, it's not healthy. I have somewhere between nine and 12 meetings a day, um, which is a lot. Um, but I will schedule days where I'm not taking any meetings where I can sit down and kind of focus, but I'm like the master of the meeting in between meetings. So like <laughs> I'll do this right now and then I'll have a 20 minute meeting in the car on the way to my next meeting. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I live and die by my calendar. Like, I, I can't put that in my head. So if it's not my calendar, it, like, doesn't exist. So I that's I have to-do lists every day, and I have a calendar that kind of tells me what to do every day. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Do you Are you wanting to camp out at one coffee shop and make everybody come to you? No, I move all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure when you're traveling, it's and I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean, I've, even crazier. Last week was the first full week I've been in Nashville this year. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which was nice. Yeah. So are you traveling to LA and New York for um, project solely for project admission yeah. or do you have other side projects nope, going on right it's now? It's all project admission. Okay, got it. Um, and tell us a little bit more about your team. So you said, you know, they're an integral part to your success and staying organized, your co-founders, and then how have you identified talent and gone about the hiring process to scale quickly? So I've been fortunate to have kind of I've built my career around people and relationships. And so I have this amazing wealth of incredible people that are around me that I have a very good relationship with. And both from, you know, working directly together or working with each other from a distance. But um, that is really what gave me the will to push this thing forward and really start to do it. Because 
I, I'm not really a big fan of of it all being on me, or it's about like me getting this thing done and popping out, you know, from from the side and like, ah, we did, I did it, yeah. you know. It's not it's not about me. It's about the team, and so uh, kind of stemming from Jordan, my co-founder, um, who has a ton of experience, was you know Taylor Swift's like first employee and had a startup in Silicon Valley. Like starting with him, we kind of. Um, pulled in both like ex song kick executives, people that I'd worked with for a long time. And then another one of uh, our partners had a, a tech company previously, and that's our kind of development team. And everybody had worked with each other for uh, either directly or, you know, as overlapping clients for a long time. So there's a lot of trust and respect that's there. And considering that we're a distributed company, you know, we're spread out into a bunch of different places. But because we all know each other so well, that's not an issue. Um, uh, yeah, so as it goes to kind of kind of like anything, like the way we grow the business, the way we find new people, is all stems from relationships. Right. I, I'm not a huge fan of the cold call. That doesn't I don't I don't ever do a cold call. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, it's uh, all about those warm connections. Yeah. So how do you having a company that is nationally or internationally really um recognize and that you're working in so many different markets how do you um network so broadly and i know it's part partly traveling but even in markets outside of new york and la where you're going on a monthly basis it's a small world mm -hmm. i mean I've, I've i've been in the music industry or in entertainment for 20 years now so if over that time the people that have stuck around you know it, it's the network grows, especially if you like have always taken a kind of long view. And I've never burned anybody, so I've really, like I said before, I built my career on my relationships. And you know, the last company, uh, Crowd Surgeon Songkick, we were selling tickets in seventy different countries, so that afforded the opportunity to meet and build relationships all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it doesn't feel. I, I my life exists in multiple time zones every day. And I have friends and, and experiences and people kind of all over the place. So it's at this point, it's because it's such a small world. It's it's I it's like if we identify identify an opportunity in a region, we've got someone that's related to that region that we can kind of tap into it if we if we like to. Uh, so like right now, there's like a conversation that's happening. It's kicking up in Japan. There's stuff we're talking about in Australia and. It's a bunch of stuff in South America, but I'm kind of afraid to to go after that right now. It's a pretty, pretty crazy place. I spent a year and a half of my last business kind of building our operations down there. It's gotcha. It's volatile. Yeah, in South America. So, in terms of the future for the company, are you or your goals to build it up and sell to one of the um, larger companies that you're kind of helping connect, or where do you see the company in five years? Uh, well, my goal is to build a. a a good business that generates revenue and that creates impact. There's obviously a bunch of different roads in which a business could go, um, but all my focus is is on this on the day that we're in right now and getting the things that we need to get done done and growing a real business and creating impact. Mm -hmm. If that leads into a partnership that makes sense for us, then great. If it leads to us having a very sustainable business that we're able to kind of drive all the way through, then Amazing. Um, you know, I think we got to, you have to be aware of all the kind of roads 
and play to all eventualities, but you have to build a real business, I think, is the, the core of it. Yeah. And why Nashville for your headquarters? Uh, well, my wife and I were living in Brooklyn, and we wanted to make babies and did <laughs> not want to do that in Brooklyn. And honestly, Nashville wasn't really on my radar at the time. I'd been here, you know, 15 plus years ago, and it just didn't resonate with where I was in my life at the time. Um, and I came here in 2011, and it, I just absolutely fell in love with it, moved down here. And then Nashville exploded around me, which is kind of incredible. But yeah, we were, we, uh, yeah, we, it was a pretty easy decision. I mean, we, we could have gone to LA. I didn't want to live in LA. London was an option, didn't really necessarily want to move to London. Um, and so Nashville made a lot of sense. And at the time for Crowd Search and Songkick, it also made a lot of sense because we hadn't tapped into the country market. And, you know, after being here a year and a half, we were working with Kenny Chesney, Lady Antebellum, Eric Church, Dirk Bentley, Brantley Gilbert, you know, uh, Reba McIntyre, tons, tons of different country artists. So it did, it was, it was good for our business, good for our life. And this is now home and I've made, uh, two local Nashvillians. So nice. Far. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so in tech and entertainment in particular, do you think Nashville is ahead, behind, or tracking along with its peer cities? So I think we are about to open up. I think, you know, there's there's other kind of, uh, I don't want to say second, I guess second tier cities, like if you take it from like New York, LA, whatever, um, that have you know, like Austin, I think, has kind of been deeper in the tech scene than Nashville has. And then there's kind of what's going on in the triangle in North Carolina. But I think Nashville is primed to do a lot in the space. And I mean, it's, you know, Amazon opening their fulfillment down here. Um, we'll add a little bit to it. But there's a lot of there's a lot of small tech companies kind of choosing Nashville as their home. Um, so I think over the next like number of years, we're going to see, uh, and hopefully a lot more kind of successes coming out of Nashville that we can attribute back to our community here. Right. Yeah, I know. It's super interesting to see the, all the Silicon Valley s- groups that have come here. And I feel like it, they've kind of flown under the radar a little bit, but like Postmates has their largest office here. And yeah, Lyft is here. Yeah, and- Eventbrite, like all of these companies. And it's funny, a lot of them have kind of even gone to the same office building and they're all sort of, it's like this little circle. But I think, yeah, like you said, when Amazon comes, it's going to be like, this is a dominant group of people. And um, I really think it's making a splash for the better in the Nashville community. Totally. And the money's starting to show up here too. There's a a fairly well-known VC that's opened up an office down here quietly. Um, Which one? Mucker. Mucker? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, it's going to be interesting to kind of see where they go. And it's exciting that you know them as well. Um, So I've uh, heard good things. And I know Monique with with them. So what um, services do you outsource in order to grow your business? We don't. Everything's in-house. Yeah. Oh, well, well, sorry. That's a lie. (laughs) Legal. Accounting. Yeah. PR, uh-huh. and that's it. Everything for the core business is in house, but right. the kind of the the quote business level operations right. we right. we outsource. Ancillary kind of, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. 
Um, lawyer and, was the first thing. Right. Like we got a lawyer <laughs> lawyered up that. first and then went from there. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, crucial. Um, and at what point do you think your company will be ready to bring those things in-house, if ever? Um, well, we have—I uh, don't know. We'll see. Yeah. You know, it, it's— the the legal piece is probably the one that starts to make a lot of sense if you can get a kind of general counsel that can carry a lot of the like nitty gritty weight. Um, it's expensive contract. I, I just did a contract negotiation and it was there was thirty versions of the contract. Yeah, that's not cheap. <laughs> so it would it definitely would have been cheaper to have had someone in house. So I, we'll see. I think yeah. it's you know a question of like bandwidth. Funding, revenue, and you know, if you it's worth the cost if you can have that burden and kind of lift it from your mind onto a team of professionals that you trust to kind of manage that piece for you. Right, right, absolutely. So moving to a higher level of just Nashville and talking about your experience here, I'm always interested, particularly in those who have lived elsewhere from elsewhere and have chosen Nashville. I am from Nashville originally, so um, I think that I see it through a certain lens, but I would love to ask a few questions to kind of hear the lens that you see it through, having lived in places like Miami and Brooklyn and even uh, outside the U.S. So um, in terms of just holes that Nashville has in general, what do you think that we're lacking? Fine art. Interesting. I think we need more fine art. There's, and there's also not enough of a urban, from like a music perspective, uh-huh. uh, scene here. Yeah. Those to me are the two big, the glaring holes for me. Yeah. I I would uh, – fine art, I haven't gotten that one yet, but I can definitely see. There's um, stuff here. It's not yeah. – like there's definitely – there's cool galleries here and the, there's the art walk and there's stuff that people are doing. But I, I, I just grew up with a lot of friends who became pretty well-known fine artists. Yeah. And so I'm pretty kind of like tapped into that scene in the big cities. And we could we could definitely benefit from a little bit more – of that here. Definitely. No, There's a ton of money here. So right. like, <laughs> why not? <laughs> should get the art here and get the, all these yeah, people exactly. in to buy some art. From, yeah. Well, you know. I think they're prob- it's probably clustered in the private school art shows. So. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but um, fundraisers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I completely agree. The urban music. Um, I just sometimes cringe when people are like, oh, I came to Nashville and all I did was go to Broadway honky tonks. I'm like, yeah. you missed so much because I think it's here, but it's just, it's not highlighted like it should be. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and I worked in hip hop for a long time. So I've, it's definitely, I have a, I would love for that to. Yeah. Well, even just nightclubs. I mean, there's yeah. barely any, I mean, the dream just opened their nightclub, which is like really, in my opinion, the first thing like that, that's kind of standing you know, I guess it's part of a hotel, but standing on its own more so feeling than some of the other ones that, you know, you're, if you're a honky-tonk, you're a honky-tonk, in my opinion. You can't try to yeah. double as a honky-tonk in a nightclub. Yeah. Yeah, but, totally. You know, <laughs> teach their own. Um, what does community look like for you in Nashville? So a big, uh, another huge piece for me moving here was the fact that you can truly get involved with the community. Um on and on many levels, like one, I think people in general are way more community focused, and I, I feel like we've built this amazing community around us. Um, my wife works in film, mm-hmm. so the Bell Court and everybody kind of around that was like our first kind of like friend family here. Yeah. 
Um, but the beyond just kind of the friend community and the community around like the schools that our kids go to, um, the fact that I could help be in some fashion uh, a part of the kind of bigger pieces to what's growing in this community, like something involved with the mayor's office or with fundraisers or, you know, different community stuff related to like urban planning, um, that you can do that and it doesn't have to be a full-time job. Like in the big cities to touch any of that stuff, you either just need to walk in with a giant check or uh, it's a full-time job. Right. And here there's, for me at least, there's a balance where I can kind of get involved and get engaged and help uh, participate in that stuff in whatever way that I can add value. But um, that I, I love about that. So I can be a part of helping to kind of grow the city in my small way. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And what is your wife doing film? So she works at a company called the Criterion Collection, which is like a repertory film company that manages the rights to like all the Bergman and Fellini Kurosawa films. And they put out like Wes Anderson's Uh uh, like Blu-rays. It's like a cool indie art film company that's basically like if you go to film school, you study the Criterion Collection. So she's been there like 15 years and uh, helps run their sales. Cool. Do they have an office here or does she just work remotely? Okay, got it. Cool. Yeah, I feel like that's another industry that could grow here, but it's pretty lacking right now, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, the problem is we're not going to get a tax incentive uh, because we don't have an income tax. And I'm actually part of – there's a – film commission here and I, I kind of helped those guys out a little bit uh-huh. in some fashion but uh, it's hard to get a proper tax incentive here to drive people to Nashville right and we don't have we have like a, a core team of people to kind of operate but we don't have all the services kind of fleshed out and Atlanta is like yeah. massive with film and so they're kind of that for the southeast yeah so got it um, what does a day in your life look like uh I spend the first 45 minutes of every day solo with a cup of coffee reading before kids are up. I have my that's my one peaceful moment in the day mm-hmm. is the first 45 minutes get I know no emails, no I don't go to the outside world. I just kind of like get centered, I guess. Yeah. Um and uh when I'm in town, I am dropping my kids off every single day and then it is like I said the 9 to 12 meetings throughout the day. And then it is pick the kids up from school and then maybe go back and do more meetings. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, if there's an event in the evening, go to an event in the evening. But uh, typically when I'm in town, I try to crash as early as I can. Right. Um, but I am typically on the road two, three days a week. Gotcha. Yeah. So how do you manage the family? Do you, If your uh, wife is traveling out too, do you all have a nanny? Or? We do baton toss. So if yeah. I'm in town, I got the kids. If she's in town, she's got the kids. We typically, we don't go away at the same time. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, good for you guys. That's uh, got to be some uh, like Tetris. With it's amazing. We, we've definitely, <laughs> we've, had the, we've had the hour overlap before where like I land and then she goes to the airport an hour later and we right. just like pass the kids off. <laughs> got to hope for no delays. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Whether that happened once and we had to call a friend to come yeah. like, manage the gap when well, both of us were in the air. Right. That's a great thing about Nashville is I'm sure with especially living in the Hillsborough West End community and if you're kids, totally. you know, it's such a neighborhood and, you know, it's kind of like 
I mean, I know some people that have families in East, and it's like it, it's sort of the it takes a village mentality. You know, everybody's just kind of got everybody's back. Totally. So. Our kids are raised by a lot of people. Yeah. And, and yeah, the Hillsborough West End areas, uh, for me, it was like we only looked in that general zone. Yeah. Sidewalks, it's walkable. We're a one-car family with two kids. and. Yeah. You know, our our commute every morning is maybe six minutes to drop off two kids at two different schools. Right. Like it's 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 nice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and last but not least, is there any advice that you would give listeners uh, who have a passion and want to turn it into a business? Don't give up. That's <laughs> I think really that is the if you boil down all the stories that everything that I've seen and everything that I've done, like you, you look at all the different experiences of people growing things and the the basic level that you always see is don't give up yeah. i think that's it yeah i really think that's it's like just per, just be persistent don't give up and you can do it right yeah no it's great well thank you so much for coming on the show and stay tuned everyone for project admission success and watching them grow cool thanks for having me Please reach out to share your experiences with us by emailing newinnashvillepodcast at gmail.com. You can also sign up for our mailing list and access our social media at www.newinnashvillepodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, please review and subscribe on iTunes and refer our podcast to a friend today. Thank you to Jared Anderson of Evergreen Productions for producing and engineering our podcast. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time. The music in this episode is provided by Carrie Ann Larson. She is a singer-songwriter who strives to write songs that people hear their own stories in. You can find her music, including her latest single, Fairweather Friend, on all digital platforms.